Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As expected, four months, Vladimir Putin ordered Russian forces to invade Ukraine under false pretenses, sparking bitter fighting across Europe's second largest nation and targeting the country's democratically elected leadership. Washington and its allies have sanctioned Moscow's banks, preventing them from trading in dollars, euros, pounds and yen. Putin and other senior leaders uh, and their families have been sanctioned, and Washington has worked with its allies around the world to restrict technology transfers to Russia. The European Union has vowed to sever Russia from the international financial system. After a brief drop, markets surged as investors had priced in the invasion over the past several weeks. All eyes are on how Putin will retaliate, with, with Kremlin leaders already making clear energy flows to Europe are expected to be targeted and telegraphing everything from cyber attacks to new nuclear saber rattling. Defense stocks surged on expectations of higher U.S. and European defense spending. Washington is expected to top $800 billion in 2023, and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, just this morning stunned the world by announcing a massive increase in military spending and modernization that would bring Berlin in line with NATO's goal of 2% of gross domestic product for defense. Leading UK and European companies also reported earnings last week, including BAE Systems, Babcock, Hensold, Rolls-Royce, and Safran. And COVID has killed nearly 950,000 Americans and some 5.9 million worldwide since the start of the pandemic in March 2020. This as Britain and governments around the world lift restrictions, including the United States, where the Centers for Disease Control is calling for the easing of indoor mask mandates. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, uh, who is now joining us from our Milan Bureau, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, who is joining us from our Venice Bureau. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Vargo. Thanks. Yeah, it's a pleasure as always, Vargo. Greetings from Venice, Vago. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two new weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters uh, each week. And the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, Ron, how did the group perform last week? Oil went over $100 a barrel. Gas is up as well, uh, both of which are actually uh, really uh, good for Vladimir Putin. Uh, the ruble plunged on Moscow, uh, and the Moscow market was down 45%, but there was a bit of a rebound there. Um, and even though he can cut off Europe's gas supply, he can only do that for so long before that becomes a problem. And I have to say, to my dis great dismay, uh, nobody wants to pull the, the energy lever, uh, in part because of Europe's dependency on it at the time inflation is running high and all of that. How was the week and what does it mean for the group now that the shooting has actually started? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, it was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a very volatile week. Um, if you if you look at the S&P, uh, the S&P, interestingly enough, um, closed up on the week. Uh, it was up just 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 under a percent, uh, 82 basis points. Uh, when you look at the, the group itself, um, no big surprise. And we'll talk about this in more detail later. Uh, the defense names were, were all up, um, up about 5%. Uh, Boeing was down about 4%. Uh, 
and I think that was pretty representative. Um, but the commercial aero names were broadly uh, underperforming. The defense names were outperforming. Uh, if you look at interest rates, one of our favorite things we like to track, um, they were up a little bit over 2% and then down a little bit, or, you know, just they've been tracking around 2% and have done that. And you didn't see much of a change there. And as you mentioned, energy prices, if you look at um, uh, crude, uh, sort of generic crude in the US, um, it popped up over 100 for a day and then kind of gave that back. If you look at the trend on crude, it really hasn't changed all that much. Um, if you were just to look right at crude prices and you know, how the prices have been tracking, you wouldn't have guessed that um, the Russians in, in, invaded uh, the Ukraine, honestly, right? Tr crude's been you know, trending up now for uh, since uh, early December, uh, and it's just sort of on the same trajectory. So interestingly enough, the week ended um, in maybe a, a much better place than one would have thought um, if you had said earlier in the week that the Russians were going to invade the Ukraine. And, um, you know, and clearly, right, all the big defense names were all up at the end of the week. Yeah, I'd say it was what was particularly interesting. Friday was what I like to call a happy market day. Um, and that's my, my terminology for uh, a risk on day. Right. So risk, risk assets, assets tend to be a little more volatile. Um, we're all up, right? So, you know, in my world, that tends to be the names that despacked in the last year, that kind of thing. Um, the, the risk assets were all up in, in my world on Friday. And, and typically on a day like that, you know, the defense names, which are generally thought of, um, you know, pardon the pun, as being defensive, um, would be down. That wasn't the case. It was a kind of a happy market day. It was a risk on day. And all defense names on Friday were up big. Uh, and conversations with investors have been shifting towards, hmm, has something changed? Yes, it has. I think there's a recognition that uh, defense budgets in the U.S. and globally will probably be ticking upwards and that defense is probably something that we should own. And, you know, questions went from, you know, uh oh, when budgets go up, what the defense multiples do to, you know, just about two weeks ago, even a week ago, uh, you know, people just wondering, okay, well, how do defense stocks perform in sort of a, a, a defense budget just sort of muddling sideways. So I think there has been a change, no surprise, but a change in investor sentiment around defense. Sasha, I want to get to what the Germans are doing uh, in just a moment, because this uh, came through, obviously, just before we started uh, taping the uh, increase in, in spending. Overnight reports that BA's, uh, British Airways' uh, entire IT system uh, is down. There's uh, speculation, obviously, that that could be our Russian friends uh, doing it. And, and indeed, the Russians had indicated they would do offensive cyber operations. Everybody warned uh, and has been. Um, and, and obviously, there are folks uh, or, or, uh, in both uh, our capitals uh, at this point who are looking at what that means and how to retaliate, given that you know both our nations also have a wide array of uh, offensive cyber tools that we've clearly indicated that we're willing to use. What 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 happens now that this has happened, right? I mean, the EU made the extraordinary statement to sever Russia from the international financial uh, system. There's more talk 
uh, of uh, booting Russia out of uh, SWIFT. Uh, everybody's been a little bit reluctant, you know, as, as Ron said, um, to target energy, although some of this is being priced in, right? I mean, people have been sort of girding for this. Uh, and indeed, I mean, there's some speculation that Putin himself may have actually put some uh, options calls uh, on this, right? I mean, some, some uh, you know, interesting financial activity heading into this. And if you were, you know, if you were the guy who was going to launch an invasion and you know what the date of that invasion is, you could actually make some money off of this. Um, you know, where, where, where are we headed right now? And what does this mean, particularly for the commercial aircraft uh, sector? Because it's not unreasonable to think that at some point we might actually have some sanctions on Airbus, on Boeing, you know, GE, Saffron engines, uh, what have you. And then the Russians also control everything from neon gas to, you know, and everybody thinks that, you know, they're just into this with titanium sponge. It's also finished titanium components that everybody depends on, right? Where, where do we, where, where are we going and what does all of this mean? And Richard wants your take uh, as, as well, because, you know, does commercial aviation actually become something that is most hurt in this uh, at a time when the industry is trying to rebound? Or do we look at Russia as more of an asterisk? Take it away. Okay, I, mean, I, I just want to pick up on what Ron said about markets first of all, because European markets were remarkable this week, and particularly for the aerospace and defense sector. Um, and I, I think to look at what happened on Friday when there were stories, rumors that there might be some mediation between Russia and Ukraine, and the markets just you know, went very, very uh, positive on that. I think to look at, look at that is very misleading. You've actually got to look at what's been the move over the week. And... Um, Thursday was astonishing because the civil and the defense aerospace stocks in uh, uh, Europe absolutely gapped apart. And that's actually continued during the week. So if you look over the week, Safran shares unchanged, Airbus shares unchanged, MTU Aero Engine shares unchanged, Rolls-Royce down 10% because their chief executive, Warren East, has basically decided to bail, uh, which I think is to his discredit. Um, personally, you know, I think that you know, in a crisis like this, you really should stand by stand by your firm, but he's decided to retire. And that really was the, the net change to, uh, to Rolls-Royce. But look at the defence stocks. BA Systems up 9% for the whole week. Talis up 10%. Rheinmetall up 13%. Saab up 15%. Dassault Aviation up 7%. So massive disparity in performance, uh, civil versus military. And, and our view is that the civil stocks are, or the investors' views of the civil stocks, they're being too blasé about the uh, economic implications of this. There's starting to be, I mean, and working in a particular order, there's starting to be concern that because Russian airspace is being shut off progressively to different airlines, British Airways was the first, but sure as hell won't be the last. European airspace is being shut off to Russian airlines, and hence uh, there will be a tit for tat there, that this will impose a big cost on airlines overall. Our view has been for some time, short haul uh uh, the short haul recovery, narrow bodied airliners are going to be pretty good, but this just is yet another nail in the long haul coffin. Uh, and, you know, you shouldn't expect wide body demand to go up anytime soon because there's nowhere to fly the damn thing, certainly not a, across Russia. Um, and it makes international travel harder. Sanctions. Um, I'm not sure actually that the issue is sanctions. The issue is going to be what the West in its various forms does that causes a, uh, a reaction or a you know, counter reaction by Russia. And my worry would be not that there are uh, sanctions, suspension from SWIFT, uh, the international payment system, uh, although that 
that may happen. Uh, there are, there's clearly a lot of resistance to that from uh, Germany and Italy because they are the two countries most dependent on Russian natural gas. I think what, but what would worry me is that the, uh, or you know, if the Russians decide to suspend exports of uh, aerospace components, titanium and uh, and aluminium forgings and uh, castings and fabricated parts, that actually has a bigger effect on the uh, civil aerospace companies, three engine companies, uh, GE, uh, Pratt & Whitney, Rolls-Royce, uh, uh, along with Safran and NTU, clearly an oil universe, and Boeing and Airbus, because they get between 25 and 35% of all of their titanium from Russia, not just sponge, parts. You know, All of us who've been to air shows in the last however many years, if you go and visit VSMPO, the uh, major, but by no means the only uh, Russian, um, metals uh, production, forgings company. They are a fantastic, impressive producer of big, complex metal parts. And if those get cut off, and they're cut off by Russia, not by the West, I did, uh, in, in my view, then I, I think that's actually a bigger impact on the civil aviation recovery than uh, anything that COVID has done so far, because that's a that's a structural problem for the supply chain. I don't think that you can resource those sort of parts inside half a decade. Richard, your your sense on on sort of like where we are and where we're going and what the impact of all of this is going to be? Listening to Sash, one thing I'd point out is the massive asymmetry in economic power between Russia and the West, because in terms of it's important to commercial aviation, Russia is somewhere between nowhere and nowhere at all you know it's maybe one or two percent there's a geographic and you can plot that geographically right between nowhere and nowhere at all so yes it's a it's it's you know it's it's a it's not a very fat line uh but you can notice it on a map it it simply doesn't matter uh and in terms of overall russia's importance to the west it's all about raw materials the only exception as sash rightly points out of course is those titanium castings and forgings but in terms of value add they're nowhere which means that we can cut them off um and we won't notice it we really won't notice it if they cut us off aside from those castings and forgings it's not a big deal yes it will move the needle in raw materials prices that will adjust because that's what you know, that's what markets do. But also, more importantly, they'd be cutting off their nose to spite their face because that's where they get all their cash from. So, you know, the now, will they still do it anyway? Yeah, obviously, the Russian government has shown nothing but a willingness to uh, cut off its nose to spite its face. You know, it, it, it it's a little concerning. And that, of course, factors in a great deal of risk to things moving forward. But in terms of direct impact to the West's economy, uh, West economies, um, I just... <laughs> it's nothing like what is about to happen to the Russian economy, not even vaguely. Uh, and the titaniums, titanium castings and forgings, that's going to be, boy, how quickly can they ramp up? Because this is long lead item stuff. If you're, I don't know, Helmet, Precision Gas Parts or whoever, ramping up to displace Russia's share of the castings and forging market, that's going to take a lot of time, a lot of money. So you could easily see supply chain disruptions if the Russians do decide to cut off their nose despite their proverbial face. One thing that hits me, though, about what Sash says, you know, he's absolutely right. You know, international law, another nail on the coffin, I think was the term he used. That sounds exactly right. I'm reminded of what Ron has said many times about the COVID pandemic. 
if you went into this strong, you got stronger. If you went into it weak, you got weaker. I'm wondering if that's going to be the case. And, you know, we had concerns about castings and forgings. That's going to get worse. We had concerns about international. That's going to get worse. And by the way, that I think is the bigger, just as big a part of the Rolls-Royce issue as Warren East. And then on the other side, if you were happy about the combat aircraft market, you just got happier. If you were happy about narrow body markets, you just got happier. It's all relative, um, but you know, clearly that, that bifurcation is just gonna kick into uh, to overdrive. In terms of you know, bigger picture issues with aviation and airspace, you can see one of the big victors being like maybe the Gulf carriers if Russia does close its airspace because all of a sudden their position in the world suddenly got more valuable. But again, here too, I think things will adjust. Well, um, I, th I think the Russians are cunning enough to allow Gulf carriers to overfly them and not let anybody else do it, right? I mean, they're an OPEC plus nation uh, and obviously looking to increase um, and always have an interest in increasing their um, you know, power in the region, especially as the United States interest in the region markedly declines. Um, That's exactly I mean, I, right. I was thinking they'd be aviation entrepots, just like they are in some ways between the Iran and the West in terms of exported goods. That's exactly it. And 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 of course, China and the and the and the region as well. I mean, I, I my my only pushback would be that we have not done really. Suffice it to say that Vladimir Putin does, may not be as terrified of what we're doing, in part because we have a tendency of having rather sizable carve outs. We start with bold declarations, but we almost always, right? I mean, no sooner had this war started, Italian manufacturers appealed to Rome. Uh, you guys are there saying, ho, 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 let, let, let's not let's not let's not be too hasty here. High end luxury goods should, should still get to Russia. It's not like Ivan and Ivanka on the street in Moscow are the guys who are buying this stuff. It's oligarchs who are buying, you know, $12,000 purses, uh, right? So let's just be realistic. Eventually, almost everybody who's in this game, whether you're a British bank or anything else, don't necessarily want to mess this up. I don't want to be, you know, the, the guy who brings stink into this. There's a lot of oligarch money everywhere from Park Avenue to, you know, uh, to, to Mayfair where, you know, the last time I checked, Sash, there are guys who own football clubs in the UK uh, that are oligarchs. So, you know, I, I, the proof in the pudding is in the tasting. Nobody is moving the energy lever. Uh, and I would argue that that's something that we kind of have to do. You can't have business as usual while this, uh, this is uh, ultimately going on. Ron, I want to bring you into the discussion. You know, what, what are the next phases of this? What are the next phases of this look like? What are the next phases of this uh, look like, especially if you know, this does extend to energy. Um, and then conversely, you know, my bet is administration is going to ask for 773 billion, right? That's the reported number. Uh, nobody has really particularly pushed back on that. There is a little disquietude that the administration won't be asking for more money. But I mean, now the expectation is Congress is going to give the Pentagon more than $800 billion, right? There may be, there's probably going to be a supplemental because of all the costs associated uh, with additional deployments of troops, forward basing, what have you. And this is before we put people in Finland or anywhere else, right? You know, what are the potential implications if this spreads to energy? I know you're not the energy guy at the bank, but I know that you're part of the senior team there. But secondarily, in terms of defense spending, are you changing any of your forecasts? And Sash, I want to get this uh, also from you, right? I mean, we've talked about anti-tank weapons, you know, whether it's Enlaw or Javelin flying off the shelves, there's got to be more to that. Ron, I want to get your, your sense and sort of move through the line then. Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, on the energy front, 
um, it makes the, the job of the Fed more complicated, right? So going into this, um, there was a, I would say, a prevailing consensus on the street that the Fed had fallen behind the debate over how the Fed was going to raise rates and ultimately how much and how big the moves were going to be. You know, the, the, we go back six months ago, uh, people were saying, you know, maybe the Fed will raise rates three times and then it was seven times. And then uh, I think over the weekend, last weekend, um, JP Morgan came out and said, well, the Fed's going to do it nine times. So it was sort of this, you know, who could be more, um, folks were kind of playing chicken on how, how much you, you could guess the Fed was going to raise rates. Um, it's going to be a friendly, a friendly Fed or not. Um, well, this all makes that more complicated, right? Because uh, if you, you see energy prices continue to rise, which if energy becomes a bigger part of this, it just, it makes the Fed's job more complicated. And it, and it raises the level of just, you know, broader economic uncertainty, which makes the Fed's job more, um, more uncomfortable. And I think part of the reaction you saw in the market this week, in the U.S. market anyway, <clears throat> was a recognition that maybe the Fed's going to have to be um, tread a little more softly, <clears throat> excuse me, than it otherwise would have because of the uncertainty that all this brings to the market. Um, so yeah, I think you know, that's that sense. On, on the defense budget, yeah, of course, we, we have to take our, our, our budget numbers up. Uh, you know, the, the, the news kind of leaked out early last week, 773 um, would be the ask for the national defense spending. Now that seems kind of woefully low, given every factor that you said. Um, I'm with you there on the $800 billion number. You're probably going to end up above that. Uh, I'm there with you on operational contingency funding. Um, and the world changed, right? And that's you know, interesting enough. You do, you live long enough, you figure out everything's kind of cool, and then something happens, everything changes. Um, and we just went through one of those. So uh, the, you know, the, the, the national defense establishment and how it's funded and planning and so on and so forth, that's all, all changing in real time and we're seeing it. So yeah, our defense budget forecast will have to, have to be adjusted higher. Uh, we've, we've written that already and, and so on and so forth. And we just kind of have to go through um, all the numbers and, and work that out. Um, and one other point I might add to just, you know, one of the, 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 the previous conversation we had on commercial, and I think it, it you know, back to the, 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 the flying question, I mean, this puts the polar routes Right. And the polar routes, just to remind everybody, if you're flying from North America to Asia, one way to do it is you fly north. Um, and that was a key enabler for um, the long haul wide body twin. You, you got to fly over Russia. So they're off the table you know, for however long it's going to be. Um, so I think that's another factor that complicates wide body markets. And then also for Boeing specifically, there's the Boeing Design Center in Moscow. And they employ, I think it's about 1,500 people there. Um, you, know, you just you have to scratch your head and wonder, wonder what happens there, right? Uh, you know, having a major U.S. defense contractor with an office in, in Russia, right? What, what's the broader implications, you know, for going there? I would imagine they got to cut that off or shut that down or do whatever they have to do. So uh, I think that's another thing you have to think about. Sash, we've been talking about this question week after week about uh, whether or not we've passed the watershed. You've made it abundantly clear that you think uh, that it that it has. You know, we've talked about spending priorities in Europe. Uh, obviously, Enlaw uh, and Javelin are flying off the shelves, and now we have uh, the announcement from uh, German Chancellor Olaf uh, Scholz that really did catch everybody by uh, surprise. Uh, you know, and this as we tape uh, a rather dramatic increase. 
uh, or promise for increased defense spending in the wake of this crisis. What is Schultz saying? Because there are some folks who may be misreporting it, uh, saying that this is a $100 billion you know, one-time uh, increase. It certainly could add up to that. But what is specifically the German chancellor saying? And why is what he's saying so important? Okay, so there's, I, there's two things that Chancellor Schultz is saying. They have slightly different timescales, but they are both in terms of the German commitments to defense, commitments to European security, commitments to uh, NATO, incredibly positive. These are, this is a rev- revolutionary, yeah, this is a revolutionary move. Issue number one, Germany is going to, uh, according to Chancellor Schultz, now move within, and this is within the uh, lifetime of, of his government, so effectively the next five years, move to spend t- 2% of GDP on defence. That is up nearly a third from where they are at the moment. German def- defence spending is about 1.4, 1.5% of GDP. Sounds very low, but Germany has a huge economy. Going to 2% of GDP means that the German defence budget will be well over 75 billion euros, it will be bigger than France. It will be bigger than the UK. If they keep on going on that rate, it could be bigger than, than, than the two of them combined. So this is a massive increase in defence spending. But on top of that, Chancellor Schultz has announced that uh, the German government will create a special fund this year in which they will put 100 billion for defence spending. Now, they haven't yet said what pace they will spend that at, but probably, let's say, the next two to three years. So that's a, oh, it's a one-time fund. It's, it's not a budget issue or anything, but they are just pouring money in. I don't think, you know, I think the Germans are now in a money, no object mode in terms of defence spending. Um, frankly, I think this makes the F-35 a very easy buy to make for the nuclear role because they can, have, you know, that becomes chump change for them. They can still then go and buy another 40, 60, 80 Eurofighter typhoons, and nobody will terribly care. But German land system spending, uh, they will recapitalize the Bundeswehr. At the moment, the Bundeswehr has uh, a couple of brigades that are at a very high level of readiness, but probably two two entire armored divisions that are at a much lower level of armored readiness. This transforms that, and we should expect to see probably I would, I would guess four to 500 Leopard tanks either bought new or refurbished, as many armoured infantry fighting vehicles and everything that goes with that, plus drones. They haven't specified what sort yet, but again, I don't think money is any object, object when, you're, when you've got 100 billion to spend. And I'm sure that there will be trickle down as well to the, uh, to the Navy. So this is a complete trunk. We've never seen a spending uh, decision like this in Europe, not just in my lifetime, but actually since, uh, since NATO was founded. Um, you know, to have a dramatic increase in the long-term defence trajectory, up to 2% of GDP, may even go through, frankly, at this stage, don't think we need to worry about that. But then this 100 billion spending pot, that's, that is absolutely massive. And this shows that Germany has, real, has got it. They realise the Ukraine crisis changes absolutely everything, and they have to change with it. So the Germans who two weeks ago were being derided for being soft on Russia, soft on defense, you know, not quite being in tune with, let's say, the, you know, the Americans and the Brits. We, no one can say that anymore. Um, we should point out the very high readiness NATO task force uh, has also been uh, activated for the first time uh, since its founding. Do you think that other nations follow suit now that Germany has done this? Are we going to see other countries uh, pony up? Uh, whether, I mean, it's certainly yeah. nobody else can pony up as much. But are we going to see other nations following suit as well, in your estimation? Yeah, I think that this changes how defence is done in Europe. Uh, and 
we will see countries starting to spend in ways that bear no relationship at all to the historic budget. I wouldn't even bother to look at budgets anymore because they are acts of sort of historical interest only. Um, countries will, will order what they need and worry about how to fund it later. Not terribly good news for European taxpayers. That's tough. They've had, you know, we've had 30 plus years of uh, peace and prosperity. Now's the time to pay up. Uh, and do you think that this sends a powerful deterrent message to the Russians? Not initially, because I don't think the Russians take, I don't, you know, there's lots of evidence the Russians don't take Europe very seriously. But I think, it, I think it, it will start to. And I think also the fact that this is Germany setting such a powerful example, the, the cascade effect to the rest of Europe will be very, very important. Um, Ron, I want to introduce the notion of what open cyber warfare means, um, because if you look at this marketplace, right, banks were targeted some years ago and, you know, national security, I mean, anybody in national security cyber looks at banks and says, like, that's the way to do it. Um, these guys really got good on their game. They spend a lot of money. They invest in the technology. Um, you know, they're constantly innovating in terms of improving their defenses. There is a sense that everybody else in industry is not as good uh, and even concerns whether or not people in the national security space are as good as they need to be. We've, we've sort of been a little bit short-sighted in our inability to want to actually enforce standards on anybody uh, because, you know, standards mean cost and cost then, you know, impacts profits. But ultimately, you know, the intellectual property of some of our most important weapon systems are still going out the door because of cyber infiltrations. And I think we can agree that in, in the national security industrial base, our security is not as good, right? So, you know, does the, does the cyber, you know, first more broadly, where you think more money will happen and whether you've changed your forecast at all, but um, I want to get everybody's take on, on what this means. I mean, if BA's systems were taken down today and we expect a wave of offensive cyber operations, we will do considerable. There's no doubt in my mind that the combination of the National Security Agency, GCHQ, and the French are going to wreak havoc across the Russian system. But that also does not mean that they won't inflict considerable damage because we are we already know that they've placed a number of cyber bombs in all of our systems just for a moment like this, and they're going to detonate it whenever they want to detonate it, right? Um, and then that, you know, there are cyber weapons, offensive cyber weapons that escape, like not Petya, and end up affecting anybody, every, everybody, right? And, and NATO's extended Article 5 to cyber. What, what how, how do you, you know, how do you all sense this element, the element um, and, and, you know, what it means by way of opportunity, but also what it means in terms of vulnerability and risk. On the first point, uh, um, kind of call it the boots, beans, bullets trade, right? And that's what happens first, because that's what you need first. And depending on how things play out, you can have longer term plans to buy you know, longer term equipment. Um, I would extend boots, beans, bullets to land systems, that kind of stuff. I mean, the stuff you need today on the ground that, that you can get as, as, as quick as possible is, is where you see the most demand. So um, you know, companies like General Dynamics Land Systems will kind of see that probably pretty quick would be my guess. And they sell munitions and so on and so forth. Uh, so I agree with that completely. The cyber thing is more complicated, honestly, right? Um, and it and, and I guess the thing and, and my understanding to be clear on, on cyber is, is, is fairly limited, right? So I'm just going to kind of limit my comments, but it it varies across the gamut, right? I mean, different <clears throat> different organizations are um, are prepared in different ways. Uh, you know, I think, you know, financial institutions broadly, not speaking for my firm, 
um, are aware of these risks, have worked on them actively, have, have, are, are acutely aware of them. Um, and other institutions, maybe not so much, right? So uh, I think, you know, it's one of the, the important issues at a, at, a, at a federal level that you have to look across industries and, and try to determine where weaknesses are. And for those industries that haven't been as aware of it as maybe others, raising the awareness. Um, I don't know if airlines are a weak point or not. Um, you know, if they are, then you know, work has to be done there. But, um, you know, that's, it, and, and maybe the next thing I can say, I feel qualified to speak about this. When you look at the, the companies that address this, um, you know, General Dynamics has um, uh, a, a services business that deals with cyber. Booz Allen uh, has, a, has a business that deals with cyber. Um, that the, the contractors that work in the cyber world, uh, I would imagine, will find more business, um, both you know, advising and developing and, and doing whatever else they need to do. Um, so there's 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 probably some upside, you know, quote unquote, in 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 cyber defense budgets and, and cyber spending, uh, and broadly, what can be considered cyber will fall outside of just the the DoD, but you know, the broader infrastructure spending. Uh, just a follow-on from Ron's points, uh, and I think that I think they're absolutely right. I mean, actually, airlines are not a systemically important part of the economy. They're just terribly important to our life. Financial institutions, boy, they are. And I think general financial institutions, from my experience working in a couple of very big ones, are much more swept up on cyber. But you know, anybody who has a cyber capability in Europe, that would be BAE, Thales, Leonardo, um, at, at the forefront, um, are going to find this suddenly become a very, very good market and interestingly commercial cyber had been a very weak market for the last couple of years um uh, that that's clearly all changed um but it, it's interesting that uh british airways might be sort of the canary in the coal mine in that respect i worry in terms of the whole cyber thing that the west is economically far more vulnerable to cyber warfare than russia is on the other hand russia is far more politically vulnerable to cyber warfare than, than the west is um so you know there's a rather rather interesting asymmetric uh, set of threats and risks uh, there. Um, you know, from my standpoint, the problem I guess I have is that we're all tending to look at this from a, you know, a sort of abstract viewpoint. Um, the Russians certainly don't. You know, it's that old joke that you know, the guy with the the sheep and the guy without the sheep, and the angel comes and says, you know, do you envy your neighbor? He says, yes. I want you to please kill his sheep. You know, it it could just be that their view of cyber is not gee, let's do mutual assured destruction, but rather, we'd rather make their lives truly miserable, even if it means inflicting greater misery on our people too. So I think we are simply more vulnerable on so many levels. Um, let me uh, go to the uh, only uh, qualified soldier in this uh, discussion, and, and that would be you, Sash. What are the things that you think are most interesting looking at this from the standpoint of an experienced soldier as somebody who's a trainer and a strategic uh, and tactical planner? Right. What are the things you've seen the Russians do that you think is most interesting to you? What surprised you? What didn't surprise you um, in terms of how this is playing out and what it means? OK, so what what wasn't a surprise was that the Russians tr have tried and in some cases succeeded in launching a very, very big multi-axis armored uh, mechanized assaults. Um, but what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong is the Russians don't seem to have achieved air superiority or air supremacy yet. The Ukrainian Air Force still flies. We don't know how many, but they still have aircraft in the air and they have drones in the air. And the Russians don't seem to be able to do enough 
about the drones to stop them from acquiring Russian targets and to stop them from engaging Russian targets. So, you know, all the lessons that the West has always learned, which is you attack with air superiority, even if local, the Russians don't seem to have achieved that. That's a surprise. Second thing, Russian airborne assaults have not worked. The attack on the Hostomel uh, airfield west of Kiev, uh, yes, the heliborne assault went in, but they failed to take the runway intact. They failed to do what in Western parlance we would call the rapid air land, the follow-on air land, and to reinforce. And basically, that's gone off as a damp squib. And it's a, it's a very, very interesting how poorly that airborne assault worked. Finally, I think there's a lot of evidence that the Ukrainians have done far better than perhaps we gave them credit for in setting up anti-armor uh, killing areas and ambushes. They're not always terribly well equipped, but they're using that equipment incredibly well. And this is a slower advance uh, so far than I think we would have feared at the end of last week. Uh, of course, you know, right. I mean, the concern is at what point uh, Putin goes full Grozny, uh, right? I mean, it's very clear he's uh, annoyed because he thought this was going to go a lot faster uh, than it's gone. And actually, there are a lot of very sophisticated governments uh, around the West that are helping the Ukrainians uh, as well, right? I mean, we've been tracking the number of aircraft, uh, for example, that are in, in the region. Uh, and in fact, uh, the Russians have complained uh, about global hawks, uh, for example, operating uh, as, as they are in the Black Sea. Um, Boy, isn't, isn't that dreadful, Vargas? I really feel really, really worried for them about all that congested airspace. That's a that's tough, isn't it? My heart, my heart bleeds for them. It will, it will sing for them when, when, when this ends badly uh, for them. Ultimately, I, I fear too many innocent people are going to die between now and then. Just to follow up on that point about going full Grozny, which is, you know, it should be everybody's nightmare, um, but. That's a very difficult thing for the Russians to do if they want to hold Ukraine and keep it thereafter. Ukraine is a country of 44 million people. It's the size of France. They have an army of between 150 and 200,000 troops. Very hard to hold a country that you have just completely obliterated. And I think they will want to be quite careful about that. They wanted to be welcomed as liberators. You don't liberate a country when you destroy its cities. Um, I believe that his special nuclear declaration uh, needs is, is going to play, I think, into his strategy of brushing back the West, uh, while at the same time, uh, in his sense, I think, um, you know, whether he does a demonstration shot uh, or, uh, you know, to sort of compel everybody to be like, look, this is what I'm about to do. And you don't want to be on the receiving end of whatever I do. Completely agree with you, right? Whether it's it's conventional weapons or nuclear weapons. Once you do something like that, you've, I mean, you know, I mean, Sash, we didn't even have to get to this point. Even before the invasion, the Russians had lost the Ukrainian people, right? So yeah. the, the folly of this is what, what do you think you're accomplishing uh, ultimately? You're not going to take and hold this country. Yeah, totally agree. I want to ask you one other uh, question and then put this to everybody else before we wrap. I mean, there seems an inevitability to this. Um, sanctions are not going to get um, stop Putin. Um, so he takes the country, Sash. What happens after that? Do sanctions boost him? People have a sense that this counterinsurgency will continue. It's not abundantly clear that that will be the case. Um, you know, how does this play out over the long term? And do we just have to come to grips with the fact that, unfortunately, and as tragic as this is, as much as we don't want to think about it, 
uh, a good nation with a democratically elected leader, he may end up in a dock if he's lucky in Moscow. Uh, well, he, he'll end up he'll end up in exile if he's lucky. He'll end up in a dock in Moscow or worse if he's not. And the Russians 10 years from now still have a puppet there as they have in every other former Soviet republic, I, with the exception um, of the Baltics. I... I, I accept that thought process. I think that's, uh, that, that, you know, there is a horrible feeling of inevitability about that. Um, I think we underestimate the degree to which countries don't, uh, you know, countries don't terribly like being invaded. And once they have armed against that, they can put up an astonishingly strong resistance for a very, very long time. And if you look at Grozny, which took the Russians two years to, to and, and they had to destroy Grozny to, to defeat it effectively. Um, that was that was awful, but I think it's entirely possible that there will be multiple cities in the Ukraine that will have a similar situation. The difference being, nobody came to Georgia's um, uh, aid. There was, you know, negligible uh, Western military aid going going in there. Tiny bits of uh, Israeli stuff, but really nothing. I think with the Ukraine, Western military aid and increasingly uh, armed military aid will become a flood. And I think that actually that's what brings Putin down, because I think that uh, he will not be able to cope with uh, not being able to declare, you know, complete military success and and body bags, and though you know they're, they're uh, having a, a conflict that just keeps on going on his borders isn't that that's not his game plan. Yes, he wants to show trial. He wants to denazify uh, the Ukraine. I think if the Ukraine government can stay in being, um, President Zelensky had. I mean, he, he you know he's managing the the PR side of this brilliantly at the moment. He clearly has been offered, uh, you know, to be evacuated from the country along with his family and his government by by the US. And he had a fantastic soundbite uh, over the weekend where he said, we're in a war, we need ammunition, we don't need a lift. And all credit to him for that. He just absolutely nailed that. I think Ukraine needs ammunition uh, and will continue to need. And with ammunition, it can make the Russian position untenable on a five-year view because that's the horrible time scale we have to deal with. And if uh, that happens, then that, that's Putin gone. Um, and, and of course, the heroism on Snake Island, uh, you know, even though it ended, I think, uh, badly. And, and that's the sense, right? I mean, friends of mine in the U.S. military and, and retired have said, yeah, very gallant, goes down in history telling the Russian ship to F off. But at the end of the day, they're still dead. Um, um, oh, and, and of course, you were talking Grozny is in Chechnya. But obviously, uh, we did give assistance to uh, Georgia as well. And, and the Bush administration's decision to send aid on American military assets is also another thing that helped temper and change the vector of the conversation, right? I mean, you know, Condoleezza Rice visited Tbilisi, and that was sort of a, a little bit of a message that, hey, look, it's, it's, time, it's time to dial down tensions. At least that's a perception on our part. Let me ask one last question of you, of, of you, Sash, because we were having a brief conversation before we started on this. The president of the United States has said that he doesn't think that Putin stops uh, in Ukraine. Indeed, people are talking about Moldova, he Putin has also made clear that he doesn't really acknowledge the legitimacy of any of the Eastern uh, nations and, you know, the, the Baltics in particular, where there are ethnic uh, Russians. There's concern about Finland. Putin has repeated his threat that if, if Sweden and Finland uh, join NATO, that would be causus belli. What, what's next and what does the alliance have to do? Because I'm one of the people who believes we should have put troops in Ukraine. It would have avoided this outcome, right? Now we have to deal with a hot shooting war, the whole part about deter the great thing about deterrence is it may be expensive, it may be hard to justify, 
but God, you know it when you see it. And this is a failure of deterrence. Ultimately, does he move next? Where does he move next? What does everybody need to do to get ready for it so that we don't, we don't do another five-month countdown to, wow, who knew they could take Helsinki in you know, X amount of time? Yeah, uh, look, I, I, I agree. It's been a failure of deterrence. I think fundamentally because there wasn't very much de- deterrence. We didn't, det- I mean, yes, we didn't deter him. We didn't try it that hard. We very belatedly started shipping some military equipment. And if you're Germans, the helmets, and you know, great, lovely stuff. Um, I think I think Finland is paradoxically more sensitive than uh, the Baltic states. The Baltic states are both members of the EU and members of NATO. There are NATO battle groups there now. NATO battle groups will, will be reinforced. They will become brigade groups and probably even bigger than that. And I think that that, that will cause him to, to stop and think very, very hard indeed. Finland is very complex because it is... Uh, in the EU, but not in NATO. And I think that uh, if the Finns wants to become part of NATO, and it clearly it's their choice and no one else's, then we have to decide how to do it very, very quickly and efficiently and effectively, such that the deterrence is, is you know, on the ground uh, almost before Putin could do anything about it. We always have a slow, making, a slow decision-making cycle when he does, um, but we've got to find a way of, of providing that deterrence incredibly quickly. If the Finns decide that uh, you know this has tilted the the balance in favor of joining NATO, uh, Ron uh, and and Richard, anything you guys want to add uh, before we part for the week? Well, I guess I just take a quick moment to echo exactly what Sasha said. And I think when history is written, this is going to be look. This is going to look like a massive strategic failure by Putin, despite what Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo think about him to have done this out of desperation. And ultimately, yeah, the history of nations being occupied, especially after a prolonged period of conflict in which case additional uh, resentments and, disc- and, and, and anger will build up. Um, boy, it's not good. I think the long run is going to be very harsh on Putin in his strategic sense. And uh, the prospects of Russia still occupying the Ukraine in five years time are not really good at all from a Russian perspective. Um, lightning round, uh, two minutes. We can have a longer conversation on this. Obviously, uh, this is the largest military action in Europe since World War II. Uh, but I want to very quickly uh, ask uh, you, Richard, uh, on uh, mask mandates, uh, CDC changing guidance. We have 950,000 American, uh, Amer- uh, nearly 950,000 Americans uh, who succumbed to this uh, virus, but it looks like we are climbing out of it. But every time we've thought we've climbed out of it, it ends up coming back. Any sort of change in forecast, your sense uh, on where you are, and then Sash going to come to you uh, for a quick uh, roundup uh, on earnings because a lot of British companies uh, reported. If you could just hit us with uh, the quick highlights of that, go ahead, Richard. Yeah, from my standpoint, you know, it's mass mandates are definitely a help, but what we really need is an end to the uncertainty and paperwork and testing requirements associated with crossing borders. That's where you'll see the real uh, catalyst to uh, return to air travel growth in international markets. You know, from my, I, I haven't stopped traveling internationally. I'm, I'm abroad right now. And, uh, you know, the one thing that causes headaches for people, including us, is uh, how do you get the test? How do you get it all filled out? The million forms needed. That's going to be the, well, the, the welcome shot in the arm that the industry needs to, uh, to get back to, uh, to health. Uh, and indeed, uh, UK, uh, you know, making some of the biggest changes, but governments around the world sort of following suit. Sash, give us your uh, quick sense on earnings. BAE, Babcock, Hensold, 
uh, Safran, uh, everybody, you know, Safran striking a deal. And we can discuss that maybe more next week uh, with Airbus on, on hydrogen powered engines uh, for a greener uh, future. Um, you know, walk us through what, what you see as sort of the key uh, elements, key things that you spotted that our audience should, uh, should take away. Look, share, share prices hardly cared about the results this week because the results almost all occurred, with the exception of Hunsolt, on the day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and therefore, the share prices responded to the future prospects rather than the, uh, the, the historic numbers. Um, the, the, the results were all fine. They're all in line, genuinely. There's, there's nothing worth saying about that beyond that. Um, Hensolt has been the standout performer this week because they have just highlighted in a very, very clear term that all bets were off with regard to the German defense, defense budget. They get 60% of their uh, revenues and, and rather more profits from the German defense budget. It's only going one way. Um, and that, and that you know, they, the share price was up nearly a quarter this week. Um, Safran, by contrast, was very, very, very somber tone. Um, uh, that Safran uh, management uh, ca uh, came to. I think, you know, they realised that no matter what the numbers say on the civil aviation recovery, which up to Wednesday night were probably were pretty good, they just can't necessarily rely on them. Rolls-Royce, um, net, the thing that matters most is probably that the um, very respected chief executive, Warren East, uh, has decided to retire. Um, it's it's hard to see that as it, it was impossible to see that as being positive. It's hard to see that as being a very good move either. I'm very struck by the fact that Safran's uh, previous chief executive um, uh, stayed in place for the whole time uh, during the coronavirus pandemic because he knew that was you know his his duty was to get the company through it. Louis Galois at Airbus. Uh, you know, single-handedly turned that company around from the catastrophic A380 problems of the uh, the mid 00s. Um, I don't think you deserve the ship uh, at a time when we, we, we're still coming out of coronavirus and now we've got a major European war, personally. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, look forward to having you back on. Safe travels to you both. Uh, have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Uh, grazie mille, Paolo. See you soon. Grazie mille. Uh, prego. Ciao. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.